Father, if you were not our shield, we would have no hope. Father, there's so many things in this world that stir us to keep our head down. There's so many things in this world that could tempt us to doubt your goodness. But Lord, as we are here today to make much of Christ as the centerpiece of our gospel, Lord, it is the gospel for which you lift our head. So Father, I pray today, as I have prayed so very often, you would please get me out of the way. Lord, I pray that you would, in these moments, stir us to see you more fully, to show us where our hope lands. Lord, I know even in these moments of tempted anxiety, Father, I trust your sweet promises. Fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you and strengthen you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. So Lord, I'm believing you today and your promises. I'm believing the promises of Luke 12. Do not be anxious about what you're going to say, but in that very hour, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. So Lord, that's what I'm asking. I'm praying that you would get me out of the way. I pray that the words that are said today would not be words resting in the ability or the strength of this man. For Lord, I know I have none, but Lord, may they go out and make much of the God-man, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we simply come and ask that we would get a fuller, bigger view of how trustworthy our God is today. And it's in the sweet name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start off by saying what a joy it is to be here this morning. I was immensely humbled when Pastor Brandon called me and then not only humbled but filled with joy at the opportunity to be back here with you this morning. I look out at so many faces that truly are family And as I think on days like this and homecoming, and we think that, if I'm correct, our last time of gathering like this was actually six years ago, back in 2009, on our 100th year anniversary of Calvary Baptist Church. And I just begin to think of all the changes that have taken place since then. Just just think about it. We were, if I'm right, I'm not cool, so I don't know, but we were still in the first generation of iPhone, right? The iPad was not in existence yet. My daughter, who sits right over there, was this big. She was four months old. Now she sits as a six-year-old. So I ponder, and we think of all these various changes. Just go through the things in your world that has happened. If you can think back to 2009, it doesn't seem like that long ago. It might feel like that. But I also know that as you begin to ponder and think through the changes that have taken place since the last time we gathered at homecoming at Calvary Baptist Church, I'm not ignorant enough to think that some of those memories may be painful. They may hurt. As a point of example, I want to read for you if I can, a list of the Calvary Baptist Church members that we have lost since 2009, and some of these names, like for myself, will be painful memories. 
So if you would, and again, I say this as well as I could. Secretary here, Terry, helped me with this list, and I think we came up with all of them. But if I miss one, please forgive me. And as you hear these names, ponder, thinking through, again, the faithfulness of Christ here. Eddie Bedgood, Lee Jones, Randolph Moore, Doris Davis, Glenn Rogers, Bonnie Tippett, Janet Hamilton, Joyce Tetterton, Tara Stewart, Doris Bullock, Joseph Langston, Ray Johnson, Aretha Bridgers, Kenneth McAllister, Margaret Jones, Letha Mae Williams, Harold Edwards, Dewey Butler, Marie Sherrod, Ernest Bowden, Mary Louise Armstrong, Teresa Melton, Flora Lamb, Mildred Rogers, Willie Ellis, Leona Barnes, Irma Mooring, Betty Farmer, Margaret Smith, Milton Stroud, Betty Rich, Barbara Proctor, Virginia Dew, Albert Edwards, Leona Denton, Rebecca Madigan, Myrtle Collins, James Hamilton, Gertrude Brigman, Lucille Rowe, Madeline Bradley, Raymond Keeter, Dot Sharon, Susan Ennis, Jasper Davis, Sheila Gray, Josephine Barnes, Billy Collins, Rachel Rose, Brent Gray, and John Flora. Fifty-one names since 2009. And if you were like me, there are some names here that when you hear them, you're immediately remind, reminded of painful loss. But today, Lord willing, I hope that God's word will stir us to not only know that pain and suffering enter our worlds, but that above it all is a trustworthy God bringing all things about for his glory and the good of his people. See, to see this, I want us to walk through primarily Psalm 56 is where we're going to be today. But before that, we need to get some context a little bit in Psalm 54 and 55. So look with me in Psalm 54 and 55 and 56 this morning. But before we examine these texts, we must ask a crucial question. And here's that question. What do we believe is the agenda of God? What do we believe is the agenda of God? We have to ask, do we doubt or question God's goodness at times when we wrongly assume He's failing? And hear me, that is a very wrong assumption because let me be assured this morning and tell you that our God never fails. We just struggle to recognize it at times because if we're honest, we're not focused on His agenda, but far too often our own. So as we look at these texts, and in these texts, David is going to reveal his current difficulties he is facing. 
we see these difficulties can come from two places that David mentions. These betrayals can come first from those he describes as outside. And then we're going to also see those who are described in this difficulty come from those who are close to us. But first, let's look at the outside opposition in Psalm 54, starting in verses 1 through 3. He says, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Look at verse 3. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Notice how David describes these individuals, specifically in verse 3. He calls these men, these people bringing about opposition, he calls them strangers or ruthless men. This opposition and struggle are from those that David call strangers or outside those who are under the covenant of God. They do not seek God. They are not men who make any effort to hide their lack of love for the Lord. We understand this, right? This this is our current world and culture we live in. We live in an ever-growing, hostile world that despises the gospel and the centerpiece of that gospel, Jesus Christ. See, David then expresses, even in the midst of these difficulties, he expresses his trust in the Lord despite this danger from the strangers. Look at verse 4 through 7. It says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in, their faith, in, his, in your faithfulness. Put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And the eye has seen, or excuse me, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Again, we see David here trusting in the midst of outside difficulty. But also we know that difficulty in our lives does not only come from those out there. Sadly, it comes from many who are very close to us. And this is what David expresses in Psalm 55. Look at Psalm 55 with me. We're not going to walk through the whole text. But in this text, he's going to show us where those who are opposing him in these moments are not those out there, but those in here. Look at verses 1 through 11, and we're not going to walk through all of them. Just look at some of the language that's used. Let's look first at verses 1 through 3. He says, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. So we first see David describe these people as enemies or wicked in verse 3. Look with me in verse 9 how he describes these individuals. Individuals. He says, destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. He says, these people who are opposing him are violent and they're full of strife. But then we see who these ones he's just described that are doing this are not outside strangers. But sadly, those who are close to David. Look at verse 12 and four, through 14, then also 20 through 21. Look at 12 and four, through 14. 
For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. And then listen even fuller to how he describes these men in verse 20 and 21. It says, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. So we see this reality that not only David had been dealing with stranger opposition, but even those who were once his close friend. And then David, even in the midst of this close friend difficulty, expresses his trust in the Lord. Look at what he says in verse 22 through 23. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Now this is not a geographical description of not moving. If you look when David dealt with these things, he was running at different times. Specifically early on from Saul and all these different dynamics. But here's what it means. If you're in Christ, if you are God's, no matter what you're facing, whether outside or inside, you are standing on a solid rock and you will not be moved. So then we see this even fuller fuller in verse 23. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. And then look at the final words of verse 23 in Psalm 55. But I will trust in you. Do you see here that in the midst of these descriptions of Psalm 54, those outsiders causing issues, and then here those who were once his familiar friend causing opposition, he says this glorious truth. He says, but I will trust in you. It is not an accident. Look at the title then of Psalm 56. In God I trust. So yes, while the scenarios and life circumstances were different in Psalm 54 and Psalm 55, God saw fit to compile and put these right near each other. Again, it is not an accident that these two psalms showing these separate sources of trouble and difficulty and pain for David, both those strangers out there and the friends in here, lead to a psalm reminding of our call to trust in the Lord. Look at, look at Psalm 56 with me, starting in verse 1 and 2. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. These all day long attackers seem to be from the strangers and the friends. We also know that even in David's life, some of those who were pressing him and wanting harm for him was his very own son. And as he's walking through this, he's describing these things. But then look at verses 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Notice these very specific words. He says, when I am afraid. The question is not 
if, but when. We all will find ourselves fearful because of the circumstances before us. But the question is, what do we do in the midst of those times? I put my trust in you. In God the sovereign Lord of all things. And then notice what he says, whose word I praise. I ask, do we know the words and promises of God enough to trust and praise him for them? And because we know those promises, but not only the promises, we know and trust the character of the one declaring those promises. It's that reason that we can say, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So can I go, here's a question, can I go through anything that can ultimately thwart or stop the plan and purposes of God? And the clear answer of Scripture is no. We will flesh this out a little bit more in our time together, but look with me in verses 5 through 7, continuing through this psalm. All day long they injure my cause. Listen to the specific language. All their thoughts are against me for evil. I want you to take that little phrase and stick it in your mind. Remember this phrase, because we're going to see a connection to that phrase and another phrase a little bit later. But then look at how 6 and 7 flesh out what these people against him were doing. Look at verse 6. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape in wrath, cast down the people's, oh God... But then listen to these glorious truth of verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Hear me, beloved. God is aware and concerned with your every struggle. In the midst of pain, don't believe the lie that God has forgotten you. It's the exact opposite. He has ordained them and kept record count of them all. And then we come to this glorious proclamation in verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. But then the second half of verse 9 is so crucial. This I know. That God is for me. Hear that again. This I know that God is for me. Now hear this. This is not meaning that God was for David because he deserved it. But that which he is facing, that which David is facing, will bring about the purpose God has for David. And I want you at this point to see the contrast between these two statements we just saw. Look at verse 5 again. Look at verse 5. He says, all their thoughts are against me for evil. Then contrast that with verse 9. But this I know, that my God is for me. See, this is a very similar proclamation to one of the famous uh, patriarchs of the scriptures. Back specifically in Genesis chapter 50. You can turn there if you want to or just listen. But Genesis chapter 50 Starting in verse 15 through 20, this is a proclamation of Joseph. 
Listen to what Joseph says and how this sounds very similar to what the psalmist just said. All their thoughts are against me for evil, but this I know, God is for me. Listen to Joseph's proclamation in a few verses. Look at verse 15 through 20 of Genesis chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of God of your father. And Joseph wept when he spoke to them. His brothers also came and fell down before him. And he said, behold, they said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant, hear this, you meant evil against me, but... God meant it for good. You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. When I was studying for this, I had actually uh, walked through this text weeks before, and I was actually, I think we were at Briar Creek, I was sitting, I think, in the parking lot, and Kim had gone briefly into a store, and if you're ever in the Raleigh-Durham area, I challenge you, turn on the radio to 105.5, it's Truth Network, just great preaching on there. R.C. Sproul was on there that one this afternoon when I was listening to him, and he began to talk about Genesis 50, verse 20, again, where he says, As for you, you meant it. They had meaning. They meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And it specifically said to bring about that many people should be kept alive to this day. The question is this. What is the good that God meant it? What's the good that God meant in this? Specifically, we know the context that, yes, Joseph's life is in view here. But we need to understand there's an even bigger good carried in that phrase that Joseph had no idea about. And so what I want to do is walk through this and let's examine just a few things. And here's how we want to examine this. Ask this one question. What if Jacob had never given Joseph that coat of many colors? That one little decision. What what if Jacob had never given Joseph the coat of many colors? Well, if there was never a coat of many colors, then there would have never been any jealousy from the brothers. And if there was never any jealousy from the brothers, there would have been no beating and sold into slavery. And if there's never been any sold into slavery to slave traders, there would have been no Potiphar. And if Joseph had never been sold to Potiphar, there would have never been any dealings with Potiphar's wife. And if there had never been any dealings with Potiphar's wife, then he would have never been placed in jail. And if he had never been placed in jail, he would have never interpreted the dreams of the workers in Pharaoh's kingdom. And if he had never interpreted those dreams, he would have never been brought before Pharaoh to interpret his dreams. And if he had never interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, Joseph would have never risen to power. And if he had never risen to power, there would have been no sustaining through the drought. But if there had never been any sustaining through the drought 
there would have been no his brothers coming back to Egypt. And if his brothers had never come back to Egypt, there had never been any reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. And if there had never been reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers, there would have been this no mass return to, ex, to Egypt Excuse me, by God's people. And if there had never been this mass coming to Egypt by God's people, they would have never been enslaved by Egypt. And if they had never been enslaved by Egypt, there would have been no need for the exodus. And there have never been no need for the exodus there would have never been a need for Moses. And there would have never been a need for Moses. There would have never been a law. And if the law had never been given, we would never see our need for the mediator. And if we have never seen our need for the mediator, no Christ. So do you understand the depth of that phrase? That you meant it for evil, but God meant it for eternal good. Please don't ever begin to think in the midst of difficulty that God is not meaning everything he's bringing into your world. See, this solid trust in God being for your good and his ultimate glory produces some things that Psalm shows us. Look at Psalm, back to Psalm 56. Look at the the products of this trust in God in verses 10 through 13. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thanks offering to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Notice what these produce, this trust in God produces. In verse 10, it produces a trust and praise of God and his word. In verse 11, we see a lack of fear. In verse, the second half of verse 11, we see assurance that fleshly man will not thwart the purposes of God. Then in verse 12, we see faithfulness and thanksgiving. But then in verse 13, we see this remembrance of God's redemptive grace. Look at 13 again. For you have delivered my soul from death. Death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. See, this truth, this solid trust in our infinitely trustworthy God is laid out in a few specific New Testament texts. I'll just read just a few of them for you and then we'll turn to one. Philippians 1. I am sure of this. Hear that language. I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But if there is any text that makes this so clear, I want us to turn there together and look. It's Romans 8, 28 through 39. Romans 8, 28 through 39. Familiar text for most of us. We could probably quote it right offhand. Start with me in verse 28 of Romans 8. And we know that For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. 
Look at how Paul describes believers in this little verse. He says, those who love God. That is an amazing description of a believer. It means that our affections have changed. We once were enemies of God, but now we love God. If you were here at Sunday school, Paul is the embodiment of this. He hated the true God. He thought he was pursuing God, but he was hating the true God because he was hating his son, Jesus Christ. So he hated God, but then when he saved him on that Damascus road, he moved from an enemy of God to a lover of God through Jesus Christ. So those who love God, meaning that we love his glory and we long to worship our greatest delight, Jesus Christ. But notice what this text says. It says, for all of these, for these believers, all things. What's not in that phrase, all things? Good things and bad things work together for good. But my question is, what is the good? Verse 29 makes very clear. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you see that the ultimate good for the believer is that we, by his grace, through these good and difficult things, these all things working together, is that we are being made into the image of Jesus Christ more and more. The illustration I like to think on is a potter, a potter whose hand is on clay, and he as a loving potter sometimes brings things into our lives that feel like a sponge soaked in warm water and he runs that warm sponge along the clay and it's good it's a blessing it's a it's a gift that he gives us and he's using to shape us but also as a potter he sometimes brings in things into our world that hurt like sandpaper he picks up a piece of sandpaper and runs down this hard edge on the clay hear me the good news and it is appropriate to pray sometimes that the difficulty and the pain would be relieved. But hear me, the good news is not that the pain would be relieved in your timing. Here's the good news, even if that painful dynamic never goes away. Here's the good news. The potter never takes his hands off the clay. That's the good news, that he's using all things to shape us into the image of his Son. Verse 30 then fleshes out a little fuller the verses we saw in Philippians 1.6 and Hebrews 2. Look at 30. It says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Many great theologians call this the golden chain of redemption. And that chain actually starts in verse 29. And notice 29 with it. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And then he goes to that language predestination again in verse 30. So notice the chain here. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. Hear me. That in eternity past, if you're in Christ, he knew you. He foreknew you, therefore he predestined you. Therefore he called you, therefore you've been justified in him. And therefore, because he's the one who's done every step, your glorification is so assured, it's said in the past tense. This then fleshes out even fuller in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? 
if God is for us, who can be against us? Do you remember Psalm 56, 9? Yeah, all their thoughts are evil, but this I know, God is for me. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Our fuel, our rest, our assurance, no matter what we may be currently facing, is this text calls us to look back and look at the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his redemptive, saving gospel as our grounds for assurance and trust moving forward. If God has taken care of your biggest problem, eternal separation from him, why do you feel as if he's dropped the ball now? He will bring about his purpose of justification and sanctification and glorification in your life. He will give us all things, namely, we're going to see in the rest of this text, more of himself. Look at verse 33 through the end. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice that very important little word in verse 37. In. It does not say despite these things, not if we avoid these things. These things, all the things he just mentioned, are part of the plan of his redemptive work in us. Difficulty is not evidence of a lack of love, but love to bring about his purpose of our greatest good, deeper holiness and fuller joy in our Savior. Again, I question myself so very often in my own God's Agenda page. I've been reading this good devotional with daily Bible reading, but Paul Tripp wrote a recent, I'm not going to read the whole article, the whole little page, but two paragraphs here, and I think they're timely for us to ask. He says, I'm deeply persuaded that many of us struggle with questions of God's goodness faithfulness and love, not because he has been unfaithful to any promise in any way, but because we simply are not on his agenda page. Our agenda, our, our definition of what is good, God, the good that God should do for us, is a life of comfortable, pleasurable, predictable life. One in which there's lots of human affirmation and absence of suffering. But consider God's agenda in various passages. And I'm going to read them. I'm just going to give you the references. James 1, 2 through 4. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Philippians 3, 7 through 9. He then says, the message is consistent throughout the New Testament. God is not working to deliver you your personal definition of happiness. 
If you're on that agenda page, you're going to be disappointed with God and you're going to wonder if he loves you. See, God is after something better, your holiness. That is the final completion of his redemptive work in you. The difficulties you face are not in any way separate from God's plan. They are not to show the failure of God's plan. They are not signs he has turned his back on you. No, those tough moments are a sure sign of the zeal of his redemptive love. The question this morning for us is, do we trust and believe that no matter our circumstances, God is for us and is bringing about the completion of his started work in us who are in Christ. Calvary Baptist Church, if I could gird up one deep abiding truth for you today, it would be this. It's that the same God who was eternally on his throne since those five members joined Calvary Baptist Church since when Calvary was inaugurated a hundred plus years ago, since God spoke, let there be light unto eternity past, that same God who sat on his throne then is never getting off in the future. He is an infinitely trustworthy God. So in the next five years, until the next homecoming, if the Lord sees fit for that to come about, in moments of pain and struggle that will come either from those outside the body and sadly sometimes those within the body and sadly sometimes even in our own broken body through sickness, we can fix our eyes to God. We can trust that he and trust in him that he is gloriously working all things out. And under it all, we trust this deep truth. God is God. I want to end with this other quote by Paul Tripp. That in those moments when we're tempted to forget that, in those moments when we're tempted to not see God and his working and how he graciously sometimes reveals how he's working and moving and doing all these things. But hear me, in the moment when it's sometimes hard to see and it's painful and you're struggling, let me tell you, don't look to the strangers or the once former friends. Look up and remember that above your life is a throne. And on that throne, it's occupied by a God of unimaginable majesty and power and he is ruling and controlling this universe for his glory and the good and joy of his people. I don't know where you are this morning but here's what we're going to do in closing. I'm going to challenge you in the first few moments even before we sing together. Pray. And here's what I want to challenge you to pray. Maybe you want to pray right where you are. Maybe you want to come down to the altar and pray, but here's what I want to ask. Are you currently going through a season, if you'd be honest, you're doubting your trustworthy God? I ask that we would pray for ourselves, and maybe you want to come and pray for the body of Calvary as a whole, but let us pray that we corporately and individually just As he has been in the past, may we in the future rest all we are in the loving, fatherly hands of our trustworthy 
God. Let's pray. Father, I don't pretend to know all the difficulties that people may be facing. I don't pretend to know the joys that people are facing. But here's what I do know. I know the God who's bringing them into the world for their good and your glory. So Lord, in the next few moments, maybe there are individuals here who none of this makes sense, specifically because the promise of Romans 8.32 has not landed. If he who did not spare his own son, how much more will he graciously give us all things? We have no hope for our future if we are not banking on the past work of Christ on the cross. So Lord, may the gospel, the perfect life that Christ lived that we had no hope of living, the wrath-bearing death that we deserved, and the resurrection that displayed loudly that that life and death was sufficient to save his covenant people. Oh God, may we rest in that today and may we, in closing and singing and prayer, may our lives give evidence that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're facing, where our hope is not in our current temporary surrounding circumstances, but our hope is in the God who's sovereign over all of them. May our joy be in Christ. God, I pray for Calvary Baptist Church. I pray that this body that you have graciously used in my own heart as a tool to shape me fuller into the image of Christ, I pray that we'd use her as a buttress and pillar of the truth of the glory of the God who has saved us. May we be a people That just as we have the past 106 years, Lord, may it all be about the glory of Christ for the next 5, 10, however long you see fit to allow this church to tarry. Lord, would you make sure it is all about the fame of the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his glorious name we pray. Amen.